The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 16 of Shackle, Burl Up and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gilson and today I am joined by the one and the only Dave Carmack who is now the, what's your title, CEO, President, Dictator of Carmack Consulting? That's pretty well it, yeah. Uh, I I like the dictatorship. Dictator. Well, Dave, as many people know, is uh, the gentleman who spent almost 40 years working for Columbus McKinnon CM as the head on-site trainer for the entertainment market. If you have ever taken a CM hoist class, you have probably spent some time with Dave. And in the most recent uh, few months, he has started his own business. If I can articulate, that would be good. His own business. Uh, continuing to train people about uh, hoist use and repair in the entertainment market. So uh, first, thank you for being with us today, Dave. And how are you doing? I'm doing really good. I'm excited about this. Uh, this is a new technology for me, this uh, on, uh, uh, online stuff. It is. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a new technology for a lot of people who are getting used to being stuck at home and not working. Yeah. So like I ask, uh all of my guests, who are you? Well, um, like you said earlier, my name's uh, Dave Carmack, and if you have ever attended any of my school, you know that I've also that I'm David Carmack. It's just a way that I like to have fun during my classes when I'm teaching them. Is um, I teach like I got a split personality, and Dave is your friend, but David is my evil ego. So that's just a way that um, uh, that I have fun when I'm teaching a class. But like you said. Um, I've, I worked for CM for actually 42 years, and in those 42 years, uh, I really consisted on uh, manufacturing. I, I worked out on the shop floor, um, building hoist, and we did them day in and day out, you know, and I kind of say it like this. I built hoist day in and day out, day in and day out, day in and day out, and, um, you know, and but... Um, uh, that, and along with my tenure in engineering, because I spent 10 years in engineering, and uh, while I was in engineering, I did um, hoist testing. We did research. Um, I was the head of the um, research and development of the test lab, and what we did on the inside of the test lab is um, we studied the the components. We study hoist. We study CM hoist. We study external hoist. Um, so uh, um, there's not a lot that an engineer doesn't know about a product because they, they're supposed to. And they, and they actually, they do study them. Um, so I did that for a while, and then I was able to move into product engineering. And then, and in product engineering, uh, my primary role was is was basically to design components. Um, um, maintain the quality of the product coming down the assembly line of both um, lever hoist and uh, chain blocks as well as the electric motors. Um, at the time that we were doing it, there were only two product engineering uh, engineers that is in that were stationed in the manufacturing plant uh, in Damascus. Um, I primarily 
And we both did the same thing. We, we were both equal partners, but his talent lied with machines and um, uh, materials, uh, metals and stuff. And my mine was more towards hoist. So that's kind of the way that we did it. Um, um, I let him take care of subbing out and taking care of the quality of the metals and stuff because, again, metals is changing just like products changes. So he, he really stayed on that. And in the event that a particular type metal was going to be obsoleted, he was, his job was to kind of find a replacement. And again, I did the same thing over on the electrical side. Um, if a part that would that was being used in a hoist would for some reason was uh going obsolete we couldn't get it anymore my job was to either design a new one or to find a market after um you know um from the market that would replace the uh, and then of course it had to go through the test lab and make sure that it that it met the high standards of cm and also while i was in product engineering that's when I got my first taste in the entertainment market. And that is, um, uh, we were just getting started. I got to quit saying we. Um, they were just getting started in the entertainment market full steam. So um, uh, CM really wanted to get into the automation. Um, so um, we partnered up with a company over in Europe. And uh, we manufactured a, um, a souped up um, controller. I mean, it had all the bells and whistles, and it had a lot of problems too. And that's that's kind of why we uh, see them. There's not long, no longer in it. But uh, I spent a lot of time over there in Europe, so I got to meet a lot of people and build a lot of relationships at that role. Well, the the story that I tell when I'm um, um, talking about my career, I say, well, one day. Um, CM come to me and says, Dave, are you really happy sitting in that little cubicle that's about two feet square? Uh, would you want to continue to do that, or do you want to get out and travel the world and teach people about these hoists? And I kind of joke with this and say that before that, the farthest I had been away from home was like 600 miles. Uh, but today, because of CM and my relationships that I've built and stuff, I've traveled almost two and a half million miles uh, teaching teaching these uh, schools. And so I feel like now that I'm probably the best all-around trainer because of my manufacturing engineering background and then also getting out in the field and taking what I learned there and seeing it through the, the market's eyes. You know, then that way I can kind of build the classes that um, uh, to better suit what the, the market needs. And um, um, I've learned a lot. I've learned as much from the the market as I have from the manufacturing. And again, that's that, that's what's good about it. Um, just like you said in the beginning, if anybody's ever come to a class within the last 12 years, um, uh, what you are studying, I come up with. I mean, before... Uh, before, you know, me being a trainer, they had a basic, more more of a sales pitch type training. Right. Uh, the, the directive that I had was to give it a um, a technical background or technical uh, base. So from then on, it just kind of I never looked back. Um, and this year, uh, CM changed their philosophy on what they were going to do as training. So they. Um, um, they offered me kind of a, a severance package, and I took that opportunity to kind of go out on my own. So in since April, 
Um, I really haven't slowed down any. I just uh, I pretty much teach the same thing, just under a different name. Uh, yep. It probably took way too long to introduce myself than what you expected, but um, uh, that's kind of my history. I, I don't think it's too long because of it, all of the listeners know that uh, I can talk for a long time, so they're used to it now. <laughs> um, one of the things that you mentioned triggered a thought in my brain, which was um, the instructor getting something, you know, learning from the students um, and being able to use that to improve the teaching as well as uh, because you were working for a manufacturer, the uh, product improvement. When I'm teaching my classes, I tell people, don't be afraid to ask questions. I may not know the answer, but I do have an extensive network of friends and colleagues who I can reach out to. And quite often when it comes to hoists, for me, you're my go-to guy. And I have text messages from all random times asking completely random questions about certain things on hoist, whether it be a topic that uh, I've either forgotten the information of or a new question that I haven't heard before. So it is really kind of interesting because you get, as, a, as an educator, you'll be asked a question about something that maybe you never taught before. Not because it wasn't important, you just didn't think about incorporating it into the curriculum. But once that question is asked, you're like, wow, that's a really good question. And then yeah. from that point on, it's always incorporated. And it may yeah. just be a one sentence answer, but yeah. it's it's those little nuggets that really... Uh, add to your ability to teach. And I've, I've taken classes with you numerous times. And I think I actually mold some of my teaching style after you because it's the engagement. It's that personality and having fun and being serious about stuff, but also enjoying it. Yeah. Um, well, that's what I say is I want to, I teach the way I want to be taught. And um, I love to have fun. For you guys that have sat through my class, you know that I cut up and carry on and I have fun. Um, and when I was doing those uh, on-site schools, um, it was usually a two-day event, about um, um, 16 to 18 hours. And, and I kind of joke with this and I says, you know, I teach a two-day class on hoist. And people are saying, my gosh, what can you talk about for two days? But you got to do something to hold somebody's attention. Uh, myself, I would be falling asleep because, you know, uh, most riggers are energetic. And when you bring them in a confined area and you set them down, most of the time it's air conditioned and you fed them well, um, you know, they're going to go to sleep on you. And I, I, and I want them to get their money's worth. So I, I use a lot of examples of common sense uh, examples. Uh, bumping the motors is a great example. Um, you know, I kind of joke with this and it says, you know, I was teaching a class and somebody, I heard somebody say, give me a bump. And I said, what, what is a bump? And then they said, well, yeah, have you ever heard of a half bump? I said, well, if I never heard of the bump, I probably had never heard of the half bump. And then I've heard a micro bump. And I tie all that into the rapid starts of a motor. So that's just kind of the way that I have fun. And that's the way I do. That's the way I teach. I want to teach to where you are enjoying yourself. Because if you are enjoying yourself, you are listening. And you may not know it, but you are learning something. And um, uh, 
you know, and I kind of st steal this from other people is, you know, the bottom line is, is everybody wants to go home at the end of the day. Nobody wants to go to the hospital. And you may, again, you may not know that, uh, that I have taught you something, but someday or something, the situation may come up and it's going to register with you and it's going to ring a bell and you think, well, <laughs> I probably shouldn't be doing that. So, um, uh, I, 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 I encourage the classes to, to ask questions because again, I'm learning and I will ask the classes questions, you know, and, um, uh, some of them, I know that they know the answer and some, I, I know they don't know the answer, but again, the interactive with the classes is the only way to, to get the bang for the dollars that you're, um, you know, that they're investing in times like today, you know, with all this mess we're going on, uh, where nobody's working, it's, you know, money don't come, come around easy anymore. No, absolutely. So I thought of a question I'll ask, which is if there was a single thing that you think is the most important thing for any person operating a hoist to know, what would it be? Think, you know, that's the, um, um, I don't, and I kind of say this, I want to teach you um, about motors and stuff, but on the other hand, I probably don't uh, because the stuff that you learn from me, you're already new. It's common sense stuff. So if you, when you're doing something, if you just think um, before you do it, because again, I'm going to steal something from Harry Donovan. Harry Donovan says accidents, uh, um, they don't happen. They just don't randomly happen. They're created. They're created by little things that you let go by, and then all of a sudden they're just massive. Are stupid things that we do, and a lot of times if we think and we get, uh, if we don't think and we get shocked, using that as an example, you will say, "I guarantee you, you'll say, well, I let my guard down.' You done something, so that's just what it's, you know. That if if I could teach somebody one thing is think because. Um, Hoist are something that we've been using for so long that we take them for granted that they're kind of a dangerous piece of equipment. And if you haven't had the training and stuff, um, realize that it's dangerous. And it's dangerous in the trained hands because anything can go wrong. Yeah, um, I, I was going to say, I, accidents don't happen. They're created when we allow stupidity to kind of come in. And if you just think it through, uh, most of the time you'll catch them. Yeah, I uh, I have an acquaintance, uh, a former student at a university that was a client of mine who is missing a finger because he sucked it into a 16 for per 16 foot per minute hoist. And mm -hmm. when you tell entertainment people this, they're like, 16 feet per minute is not that fast. And most people recognize you should be able to remove your hand, but he didn't. It happens. They are yeah. dangerous machines. And uh, if you've ever sucked anything into a chain hoist, you know that it has more than enough power to do some significant damage. Yeah. The other thing I was going to mention is, and I've mentioned this uh, before, in OSHA 30 training, they actually teach you to not use the word accident, but to use the word incident. And they reserve accident for something that was purely unforeseeable out of your control that you could not affect the outcome no matter what you did. So you're mm. sitting at a red light, 
you're not moving, you're wearing your seatbelt, you did everything correct as far as the rules of the road go, and someone rear ends you, that's an accident. You were not in control of that environment versus an incident. You made decisions that allowed that action to happen. So um, when I learned that, I was like, that's a, it's an interesting, different thought process because there are things you can't control and there are things you can't control. And mm -hmm. when we're working, for the most part, we're in control of almost everything. Mm -hmm. So thinking about it. So that's a, a really that's a great answer. Yeah. What do you think is something that people do with hoists improperly? What's in all the stories you've heard, what is the most common misuse of a chain hoist? Oh, side loading a motor is, is, um, is probably the most, uh, abused thing about a motor. And, um, and I, I spent some time on that in classes where I talk about, um, you know, I know it's really impossible to get the load exactly down uh, underneath the motor, but just realize what you are doing when you are, uh, are side loading. You know, uh, and I will say this, you know, manufacturers put protections in motors, um, not to protect the user, it's to protect itself from users. And um, uh, side loading a motor, you know, in what, make sure everybody knows what I'm talking about is side loading a motor is whenever you change a straight line from the, uh, from the upper hook to the lower hook, it can be at a 90 degree angle, be at a 120 degree angle, uh, you know, um, uh, but as long as there's a straight line between the two hooks, um, the hoist really doesn't know um, if it's upside down or backwards or what, you know, it doesn't know. But just realize what you were doing with the, the forces of the chain being drug off, off the side of that motor. Um, and I've seen, a, I've seen a lot that um, um, people will have a load. They might be a box or something in the way or a skid or something in the way, especially at trade shows. Uh, if you've ever been to a trade show load in, you know, you know that's pretty hectic. And um, so... Instead of moving and getting the load closer underneath the motor so the chain has a better shot at going in it straight, they will hook it and, uh, and uh, really put pressure on the side of the motor. Um, you know, in the classes, I talk about how much um, forces is in between the link of chain and uh, as, it, as it's supporting a load. And, and I see people's face get blown away. And, you know, I will make a comment that, you know, we use hoist every day but we really don't think about what goes on in between those two hooks, the stresses and the strains and stuff. And whenever you side load a motor, um, that just, that's putting a lot of tremendous amount of force on the set of most of the time of the aluminum frames. So you can, you know, side loading is probably the, one of the, the biggest things. Second thing is, uh, it's running a close second is using those rubber cords as handles that's coming out of the bottom of the motors. Um, so, you know, they're you not should, handles. Uh, yeah, those, those, those are not handles. Um, oh. and that's how come I kind of threw off on them as rubber hoses, um, you know, coming out of the bottom. I had a guy, if you've ever attended one of my class, you know, that I um, as I'm talking about electricity, I'm comparing electricity to water because, um, they kind of work the same. They're, they're completely different. They don't like each other. But uh, the mindset, they can understand the flow of water better than they can understand the flow of electricity. So I was referring to a um, water hose. 
So this one guy, because I referred to a water hose, he, he referred to the, uh, the cords as electric hoses. So that's kind yep. of why I threw out there that the um, um, lifting the um, um, motor out of a row case using those cords or those hoses is, is not a good idea. And again, it's always too late to say, ooh, I probably shouldn't have done that after the smoke has come out of a motor or something. Yep. I, I have a photo uh, that I use in my trainings of a, thankfully, single-phase half-ton hoist where the uh, the user pulled the power cord into the hoist while they were running it. And single-phase did some damage. It, it welded some of the links and and obviously once you suck the power into the hoist it's no longer going to work and so it's yeah. stuck on you um somebody sent me a video one time um and uh, again i i've got a warp mind um i see things differently than most um you know i seen the seriousness of it but i also saw the funniness of it um a guy he had a CM Lodestar running with it standing up on its end with the tails up in the air. He had a screwdriver stuck in the pickle and it was making it run on its own. And he wasn't even, there was nobody around the motor. Um, the camera uh, angle shot over and he was 10 feet down to the side and he was over talking to somebody and that motor was running. And I noticed that the, um, the chain was wrapped around the motor and I'm thinking, that's going to that's going to constrict that hoist, and that's sure enough. Mm-hmm. It, and it just come in and it constricted that hoist, and that motor's got a lot of strength in it, and it's got plenty of strength to to bust some aluminum frame. Well, it cut that motor in half, and what the funny part of it was is um, the first time I watched it, I thought, man, that is awesome. I'm glad I got this bit. That is cool. Second time I watched it, it was, it was okay. Third time I watched it, I got thinking somebody was. Video in that. Why didn't he stop that motor from running before it tore up that four thousand dollar piece of equipment? But uh, again, yeah. we think about motors differently than we think about anything else. Um, yep. And uh, and that's kind of a prime example of that. Is um, they thought it was funny, but I bet the guy who's, that owned it, uh, he probably didn't think it was funny. Nah, no, the the, the owner never thinks it's funny because. Uh, I'm using. I use that photo uh, when I'm teaching ground rigging. That the most important thing you can do is stare at that chain going in and out of the hoist. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you jam a chain, especially on smaller events where maybe you don't have spare motors uh, hoists on your load in, and the riggers are already left, they hung the points, and this is the last hoist you're running, and you're just not paying attention. You jam that, especially on a, a Model L, a one ton. Yeah. You can jam it where you can't back the chain out. Absolutely. And so now you just have a paperweight. And yeah. the only way to fix that is to tear the hoist all the way down, yeah. um, which is hard enough to do on a table. But when it's hanging, that's oh, yeah. that's even more fun. Um, but, you know, and- you said something there a minute ago that uh, it just registered, um, uh, you know, a thought. You said a hoist running at 16 feet per minute. You know, somebody said, Six, that's really slow. And I'm not good with math, but um, um, 16 feet per minute means it's going to travel 16 feet in that minute. How long is it going to take to go a quarter inch? Because that's exactly. all it takes to um, to have a twisted chain get jerked up in there. That's how yep. long it takes for something to be in that chain and get sucked up in there. 
That's pretty yep. fast. I, I'm just reading a uh, a book called Introduction to Fall Arrest. Mm-hmm. Introduction to Fall Protection and Fall Arrest. Um, and very quickly, they were talking about how quickly your body accelerates and yep. a person's reaction time. And that your reaction time can be 0.1 second, but you're already traveling four or five inches at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, these these parts can move pretty quickly. And the other thing that I've that you brought up earlier was the uh, the protection within the hoist. That's something that I teach people is that you know that clutch overload protector, whatever term you want to use, is designed to stop you from burning up the hoist and the motor in the hoist and not from stopping you from picking up too much weight because they slip at 200 plus percent. So yeah, yeah. that leads me to the question of what do you think the biggest hoist myths are or misnomers that people have learned improperly about hoists? Um, I did a webinar one time um CM and I busted the top 10 myths and I was trying to think of some of the good ones uh, that people does is um, um, one of the thing is is first of all I'm going to kind of set the, my answer up based off of another comment but um, you know limits are in there to protect um, uh, they're not in there for you to use every time can you use them every time of course you can but um, uh, but they're really in there to protect you from phase reversing the motor. I mean, not phase reversing the motor, but running the chain out of the um, out of the motor in the event that the chain is not. Um, I mean, if its limits are not set. Um, somebody asked me one time, can um, I was teaching a class and I was talking about the Pro Star at that time, and I said um, uh, Pro Stars do, does not have limits. And um, uh, this is probably the best example to answer your question. And um, he said, what do you mean they don't have limits? They got these stop blocks. And for you guys who know me, you know Dave and David, uh, those two got together and within a blink of an eye, they come up with this answer that come out of my mouth that just stunned me. And uh, what I said was, it was pretty impressive to me. I said, okay, that's you're exactly right, but let's talk about something other than a hoist to set up the answer. And I said, um, um, let's talk about a chair. What is the design purpose of a chair? Everybody knows a chair is designed to sit in. Well, I will say something in the class that, you know, I, I don't know unless you just dog face drunk of anybody getting hurt, falling out of a chair, sitting in it. And they kind of giggling and stuff. And I says, but, we use that chair outside of what it's designed for. We use it as a stepladder, don't we? Will it work as a stepladder? Absolutely. We all do it every day. Have you ever heard of somebody getting hurt, falling out of a chair, standing in it? We all have. Well, that's the same way to stop locks and using the limits. They're not designed to be used like that. Uh, will they work? Absolutely. Um, but it just um, because it's not designed that way, it brings in a, a possibility of something going wrong. So, and um, kind of where that story come from was, um, um, I had a guy in my class said what he was doing is he had a pro star above a suspended ceiling and um, he cut a little hole in the, in the ceiling, dropped the chain down through it, moved the stop block over to the other side because he couldn't see the hoist. 
And then he was relying on the stop block hitting the bottom of the motor. And um, um, and it would stall before the load actually goes through the, um, um, you know, through the ceiling. Well, <laughs> he didn't install the stop block correctly, and it popped off, and the load went through the ceiling. Again, you know, anytime you use something outside of what it's designed for, uh, possibilities uh, of something going wrong is, you know, the likelihood goes up. So right. uh, again, that was one that I come that somebody asked one time. Um, yeah, but you know, most of the time people use these motors uh, pretty good. You know, they uh, dry chain. You know, I know that. Um, again, I emphasize in my classes uh, lubricate the chain. I don't care who's the manufacturer of it. Uh, lubricate that chain, and nobody wants to to lubricate the chain because it's messy. And uh, so I spend time on the, the lubricating the chain. And when I can get you to understand why you really need to lubricate the chain, um, then it starts to make sense. Uh, so, um, you know, everybody says, yeah, you got to lubricate the chain. But if I look in the road cases, that chain's bone dry. Well, that's just right. two examples of something that has been uh, passed down from generation to generation, and some of the tarnish has been knocked up, off of it every time. And then it w went from it's, it's it's an acceptable practice. Well, the motors hasn't changed, just the way that we use them have. So yep. um, that's kind of what I deal yeah, with in classes. Yeah. The limit switch thing is always funny to me because when you take the limit switch assembly apart and you look at the micro switch that is part of the assembly, that is a five cent piece. It is not the, the most sophisticated or expensive piece uh, in the entire mm -hmm. hoist. And you're relying on that to stop you from from doing damage. Yep. So, you know, it's a good safety, but yep. there's a reason why in uh, hoisting, when you are relying on limit switches for a physical stop, you have two pairs. You have a limit switch and you have an over-travel limit yep. in case that primary were to fail. You don't have that in your base level hoist. And obviously, you can do anything with a hoist. A hoist manufacturer, they all allow you to, to add bells and whistles. But for the entertainment market, because we're cheap bastards, you know, why... <laughs> Why would we spend extra money on two limit switches? One is fine. Why Why would we do load sensing in a hoist? We don't need to do that. So, yeah, in a lot of us who do training, you always get interesting questions. People are, are sheepish to ask the question because you recognize what they're asking is, I did this thing. I'm now yeah. realizing that maybe it wasn't the best choice, and I just want to get verbal confirmation. Well, that's true. Um, and and at, also, I don't know how many people out there realize is that even though that your motor has is equipped with uh, limits, um, phase reversing a motor. I tell you, I talk about phase reversing. Not that I want you to stop. Phase reversing is going to always be there. Um, CM several years ago when uh, they talked about coming out with a new hoist. So we got the uh, market leaders, distributors from all over the world to come to uh, my little neck of the woods here in, in Virginia, and um, um, and our engineering director was laying out what our engineers, what, um, uh, what we thought they wanted. And they were quick to let us know that we were going to put a phase correction device on the inside of it. So that meant you, it's impossible to phase reverse that motor. Well, 
the entertainment market shut us down. I said, no, we want that. And I understand why they do it. Um, but I don't think they understand what they are doing when they phase reverse the motor. And like you said, those limit switches, right. the micro switch is a simple, I hate to use the word cheap, but they're simple, cheap switch. And um, um, if you phase reverse it and you don't have your overriding your limits, two things or three things is probably going to happen. First of all, you're going to break your limit switch or you're going to run the chain out of the motor thinking that you've got limit switch that's going to turn it off or you're going to take a steel hook block and you're going to hit the bottom of aluminum uh, uh, frame and rock, paper, scissors. Who's going to win? Steel is going to, uh, going to beat that aluminum. And again, it's always too late to say, ah, I probably shouldn't have done that. And again, when I'm teaching this stuff, yep. it's not that, I, 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 that I'm telling you you can't do it. I'm just wanting you to know when you are doing it that you are going outside of what it's designed for and possibilities of thing going wrong could happen. Right. Well, it's 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 giving you the appropriate information for you to do your risk assessment and, and make a decision on whether or not the risk you're going to uh, about to expose yourself to is acceptable. I wanted to take a second. So for maybe people who've never worked with a chain hoist, an electric chain hoist, or not very familiar with three phase power or single phase power, when Dave is mentioning phase reverse, imagine the flux capacitor or three lines that are 120 degrees apart from each other three segments, that each one of those is a phase of power, A, B, and C, let's say. And so electric chain hoist, a motor, is the exact opposite of a generator. When power comes in, the phases are offset by 60 degrees. And so that's where we get, uh, sorry, 120 degrees um, at 60 hertz. That's why I was confused. So it goes A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C. So as long as your wires between your generator and your hoist don't cross anywhere, then that motor is going to spin A, B, C, A, B, C. However, they never run in a straight line. They go from the generator to a transfer station. They change voltage up. They change voltage down. They get brought into the building. They get wired to an outlet. They go into a, you know, all those things. Any of those phases can swap. So when you plug your three-phase hoist in, maybe instead of going ABC, it's going ACB. So it runs backwards. So that's the first step. The second step is that on most hoists that we use in the entertainment business, we're using 120 volts for control, and we have an up wire, a down wire, and a common. So when you complete the up circuit, the hoist moves up. When you complete the down circuit, it moves down. The limit switches are on those up and down wires. So if your hoist is running reversed phase, meaning you push the up button, but the hoist is moving down, when you hit that limit switch, it doesn't stop the hoist because you're actually running it in the wrong direction. So that's where you can get into damage. The reason you might want to do that, the hotel ballroom, your limits are set so there's a foot between the hook and the hoist frame, and you need another six inches of trim height. So you Usually on the controllers, there's a phase selection key. You swap that and you go, I'm going to run it reverse phase so I can suck that motor up another six inches. But when you're doing that, you're pushing the little disc that selects the uh, the micro switch into that micro switch. You're crushing it. You're actively damaging the hoist. 
But as you said, it's a risk that people take because they want that six inches. They got to fit the set underneath, whatever the, the case may be. So hopefully that's a description that made sense visually for people. That sounded good. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned lubricating the chains. I think that's a, a, a topic that a lot of people get intimidated by. There's the how much lubrication is enough, what's dry. Uh, obviously, it's based on definition. Do you have a simple you know, description of what appropriate lubrication on an entertainment hoist should be? Well, no, and one really doesn't exist. You have to look at your application. Um, uh, I deal with this question uh, a lot, and um, I pretty much have, I could probably have a recording and just play it uh, when, when somebody asks because I get it that much. Um, I always, in my class, I will ask, I say, can you put too much oil on a, and again, don't laugh at the way I say oil, uh, but uh, can you put too much lubrication on a chain? And I will wait for the class to answer. Some people says yes, some people says no, and I say you're right. Um, the hoist and motor, it could care less how much you put on it. Um, you know, and I kind of use this as an example. Let's say I got a motor's got 10 feet of chain. I put 10 gallon of oil on that 10 foot piece of chain. The hoist is fine with it, but if I take that hoist into a ballroom, it's got white carpet. Now that gets to be an issue. So, um, um, you got to look at your application to see how, you know, um, um, in a factory where a little bit of drop comes out on the floor, no big deal. But that's what I'm saying. You got to look at your, uh, at your application. How are you going to, use, where are you going to use it? Um, and that's going to justify how much lubrication that you, uh, that you want to put on it. The main thing is you want to put enough that it's getting the job done. Um, I've seen, and I usually ask people, I said, how do you do it? And I've heard all of these different, and I'm not going to tell you what you're doing um, uh, unless it is wrong. It was like one guy told me, he said, I spray mine WD-40. I told him, well, he's wasting his time with WD-40. But um, um, I'm not going to tell you that however way that you are doing it, if it's doing this job, then I'm not going to tell you it's wrong. But they are a lot of different ways to lubricate the chain. Um, uh, main thing is, you just got to do it um, uh, because of the forces that's on the inside. That's where you really need it, where the, where the links touch each other on the inside of the chain. Um, that's where the lubrication is needed. The outside, and um, yeah, you need lubrication out there to kind of control the elements of nature, the rust and stuff. Uh, but uh, the real damage is going to be done in between the links of chain. That's where you really need the lubrication. Um in my classes, I will give techniques of how different people does it, and I will give how I would do it if I was um, uh, was going to do it. And again, how much is really up to your applications. How you do it is up to you, but you got to make sure that you're getting it lubricated. Uh, and the main and the, another thing is you got to make sure you're getting it all lubricated. I know this kind of sounds like a salesman, but um, uh, let's say I got a hundred foot piece of chain. How many links is in a hundred foot piece of chain? Uh, that'd be somewhere around 1300 links. Um, what if one gets dry? What if you miss lubricating one in that 1300? 
you know, and, I, and when I'm teaching this in the class, I would say when I was in engineering, uh, you know, we have to test stuff. We have to, uh, and, um, um, and we are w willing to accept failures to a certain degree because we can't build everything exact. We may test multiple samples, and if we had two failures out of 100, we're tickled to death. But if we have one failure out of 1,300, um, no, it's more, more than that. But anyway, out of 1,300 links, I'm terrified. So that's right. more, um, you know, and uh, um, I say this in a class, you know, if you ask me as a manufacturer, is a one part more important than another part? I'm going to say, no, it's not. It really takes the entire, entire unit to make one safe uh, unit. But if you ask Dave Carmack, I'm going to say the chain. You know, the chain really gets abused more than anything else. Um, you know, we drag it across concrete floors. Uh, we will shut lids or road cases in on it. Uh, yep. In some cases, I'm sure I've seen people run over them with fork trucks. You know, and um, uh, so a chain really takes uh, um, the worst beating than, than the most. But again, yeah. The message there is you got to lubricate the chain. When I was uh, working for the lighting company, I had learned the trick from several other rigging companies of removing the chain from the hoist during annual inspection and putting it in a cement tumbler that had been modified. And people different, use different aggregates inside of it. Whether it be walnut shells or crumpled up newspaper, and you'd tumble it. Now it is loud; it's very loud, and it's not like you want to be, you know, doing it at the highest speed. But the idea was you would move the chain so that the links would would no longer be in contact with each other to make sure that the lubrication was getting in there, mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, there's a million different ways. Some people have little jigs they made where they can run the chain over brushes to lubricate it. There's, you know, and this may be a flawed thought process, but uh, for hoists that are installed in uh, facilities where it's hard to take them out or you can't take the chain out, there is the idea of, okay, lubricate the chain and run it through the hoist. And when it's collecting in the chain bag, if you have enough lubrication, eventually it's going to work its way around. So there's a million different ways of trying to do it, but I think the important thing is uh, to lubricate them. And for inexperienced people, I think the definition of dry, if you pick up a dry chain, you'll know. Yeah. Uh, especially when it's starting to form a little corrosion on it, a little white dusty on it, uh, especially if the hoists have been being used outdoors, it becomes very obvious. Uh, what was the... There's uh, and, I, and I think I've seen it in your training, uh, two pictures of a stack of chain, one that was dry and one that's lubricated and how they stack on each other. You can see a difference. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I will teach that um, dry chain. Well, I, I will say this first is um, if you have ever seen a chain run out of a chain bag um, because, you know, the. And if you've got the right size chain bag and the chain falls out of the chain bag, I bet you a steak dinner that the chain is dry. Because lubricated chain, if it's lubricated properly, um, it's going to go in that bag like water. It's going to go in and just fall over and fill up just as neat. Now, if it's dry, it's going to stack up like an ice cream cone. And that's kind of what I teach in my class is, you know, it, it'll stack up and it'll fall over. 
and then it'll stack up again, then it will fall over, and it's going to get to where it's stacked, and when it falls over, it's going to be on the outside of the chain bag. Right. Uh, um, um, I teach in my class these two things that you really do. If you don't learn anything at all from my classes, first of all, read the manuals. You know, um, uh, uh, you really should read the manuals because that will answer a lot of the questions that uh, that you might have. And I kind of joke with this and say, uh, if you um, um, if you pulled the cord out of the motor by lifting it with the um, with the cords, if you'd have read that manual before you operate it, they would have told you don't pull on the cords. So if you read the manual, a lot of the problems that you see or you encounter it's going to warn you about to start with. Um, and and um, I lost train of thought where I was going with it. But, um, oh, um, is um, uh, read the manuals. And then second of all, lubricate the chain. You know, it, those are the two most important things. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised what dry chain um, will do. You ever seen, Ethan, you ever seen a motor uh, won't lift rated load? because of the dry chain i've heard of it but i've never seen it in person um you know and when i was in engineering this guy called me all upset um that he was doing a low test on his motor and he says i can't get it he said the clutch is slipping way before i get to 100 percent load and i said well i said is what's anything out of the ordinary and he said no it's running fine without a load but when it starts to get a load on it it just will not lift up i says your chain lubricated no um and again i teach about how much force is in between the link of chain well then it has to articulate across that lift wheel as it's lifting the load without lubrication all that friction in between those links of chain applied the load uh, you know made a hoist think it had a lot more right. load and uh, so uh, lubricating the chain is really, really, really important. So you brought up inspecting hoists. And there's a topic I wanted to, to bring up, which is uh, related to the ANSI standard for serially manufactured electric chain hoists for use in the entertainment industry, which is that testing process. For a long time, there's been this discussion of a static load test versus a dynamic load test. And there's, there's the, the realist in me says, I actually don't like the term dynamic load test because I think people are misinterpreted that I would rather see it be phrased as an operational test because in that load test, you're checking forces. How much force can the hoist pull with. Um, and as long as it's within the parameters for that given hoist, you're good to go. But that doesn't necessarily mean when we say a dynamic test that it has to be, you have to, you know, a one ton hoist is rated for one metric ton. So 2,200 pounds. Uh, you don't have to lift a block that's 2,200 pounds necessarily. You can, that's certainly an appropriate way to do it. Um, when you're load testing a hoist, what are you trying to achieve? What are, what are you looking to do? Would be my question. Well, um, that's in that statement you just said was about four different uh, topics that I will deal with here. First of all is... Um, um, I try. I try to make it as clear as mud. 
but the um, uh, the ANSI E16-2, that's the one for the uh, um, uh, the maintenance and testing and stuff of a hoist being used in the entertainment market. Before it come around, the one that, uh, that was used was the ASME B30.16. That is the standard that all hoist at one time had to um, um, be associated with because the ANSI E16-2 didn't exist. Now that the market has two, the ASME did not change. It is still a, um, a living uh, standard that the industrial hoist go by. The ASME B30.16 still says you can do a static test or a dynamic test. Only the ANSI E16-2 says a static test is no longer acceptable. And to go one step farther, and, I, and uh, again, I was told this, and I had just kind of went in one ear and out the other, and it's a good thing for me. I should look it up so I would know. But somebody told me that the ANSI E16-2 is the only standard out there that defines a dynamic load test as one revolution of the powertrain. Everything else, uh, all the other standards, says the dynamic test is just a, a force uh, being applied. Let me kind of go back. A static test in the old way of thinking. Static test is an external device applying a force. A dynamic test in the old way was a um, the test subject is what's applying the force. Now, for an ANSI E16-2 defines it as one revolution of the lift wheel, that means it actually has to pick up a load for or has to see a force for the uh, uh, for the revolution of the, the powertrain on the inside. Uh, and I don't know why people would do this. I know that it's being done out there that if static testing is not an option, um, it is still acceptable for the ASME B30.16. Now, don't ask me would I do this. I'm just telling you this is being done out there. Is uh, my, all my documents and all my paperwork say this hoist was certified to or tested in accordance to the ASME B30.16. And then the, the people who is asking to see your test reports, they may have some heartburn if it's not what the industry our industry is looking for, but that is an option that's out there. I strongly recommend you still stick with the, the ANSI E16-2 because that's what the market's looking for. And more and more right. and more, it's being used that way. And uh, um, so hoist in the entertainment market cannot be statically tested. It has to have a, a dynamic test. Um, as defined, an operational test is a no load because you mentioned operational test. I'm like you. Um, dynamic test gives the indication that it has to pick up a load. All it has to do is see a force. You know, that force yep. can be a bucket of water. Uh, that force can be hydraulic test machine that you pull in the ram down, you know, through the, through the, uh, um, um, you know, the, through the cylinder. You know, they, uh, but uh, it's got to see the force of 2204 or whatever, you know, for one revolution of the, of, of the lift wheel. I kind of, I was on the committee that wrote this uh, standard, and I was the only one in the room that argued this. I felt like a static test uh, is better than a no test, and I don't want to get into all that, but I was the only one that, so I lost. But, um, um, got to 
popcorn thought. Let me see how I can say this. Um, I won't say it. But um, um, as you are doing an, a static test, if it was acceptable, all you're doing is just seeing, testing the load-bearing parts. That's all you're doing is testing load-bearing parts. But when you do a dynamic or a um, motorized test, if that's the right word, uh, you're using more of your senses. You're starting to, uh, you're using your hearing because the motor is going to sound differently when you start to apply load to it. Um, it's going to smell. You know, you can smell things going uh, going wrong. So um, even when in the entertainment I was teaching both, you could do both, um, static or dynamic. I'd say that if you're asking me, I, I feel like a dynamic test. And I agree with you, Ethan. That's not a good word, but that's kind of what it's defined as. Right. Um, and that's what we have to go by is the yep. definition. And, and people have heard me talk about clarity is important using the appropriate terms. So that's why I brought the question up, because I think there's a misunderstanding based on what people usually use the term dynamic for. Mm -hmm. A, a change in load. And I did that video talking about shock load versus dynamic load, that shock loads are a specific subset of dynamic loads that have the force of gravity and free fall involved with them. Um, and when we use it in this document, we're not necessarily using it the same way. It's just we already had operational uh, as a you push the button, the hoist moves. It yeah. functions correctly, but we weren't talking about loading. So we needed a term which decided was dynamic. Well, while we're on the, the, the subject of standards, um, this is one of the and one of the most misunderstood part of it is um, I get calls a lot to say, you know, it, first of all, it talks about I'm talking ASMEB 30.16 and the ANSI uh, standard as well, kind of. But um, it says to do an operational test, which means you plug it up, run it up, run it down without a load. Just make sure everything's working right. The motor's phased correctly. Uh, the magic smoke stays in the motor and all that stuff. Uh, and then after that, you do a light load test of 50 pounds times the number of supporting strands of chain. Well, I get at Where does that come from? And but if you look at the standard and go back, look at the standard. The standard for the ASMEB 30.16 says it is a standard. Don't quote me to the title, but anyway, it covers both electric motors, chain uh, chain blocks, uh, lever hoist, and lever hoist has what they call a Weston style brake that really relies on gravity to keep the brake uh, to make the brake work, and that's a long story in itself. But um, so you do have to have a load just to check the brake. Well, it's not mentioned in the, in the uh, ANSI E16-2, and the reason that it is, it is electric hoist, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't tie in the manual, uh, manual hoist. Right. So um, there's basically two operations. First of all, you want to plug it up, uh, make sure it's up, down's down, and then you want to do the dynamic load test, um, which means you lift a load of, um, the standard says, any load between 100 and 125%. That meets the standards. Um, as the manufacturer would say, is to start out at 125%. If it lifts 125%, or if it does, doesn't lift 125%, I can keep backing that loads down 
until it does lift. But at that point, I can't be below the 100% loads. Right. So, you know, it's it's another misconception of he said, she said, they say, and little by little it starts to fall away. Um, uh, but um, uh, I will throw a plug in here with these, these ANSI standards. Um, they're free for the entertainment. If you go to um, um, ESTA.org and go to technical standards, I'm thinking of cost you's email address. Um, and uh, whatever you're dealing with, rope ladders, fire curtains, Trusses, um, help me, Ethan, you know more. Um, DMX 512A, RDM, fall spot positions, floors, all of the different working groups. Event safety is an important one that I need to start mentioning more. And I, I only forget it because they are the newest working group. Um, but they are doing a lot of good work of taking the event safety guide and turning that into ANSI standards. So the new ones that are at are crowd control. Um, and they have a structures one similar to our, uh, the rigging working group, uh, standard for, uh, outdoor structures for stages. So yeah, it, it, there's every day we're adding new stuff to the ANSI standards and under the ESTA program. And I encourage anybody that, you know, um, get them and read them for yourself. You know, don't listen to Cousin Hank because Cousin Hank's going to be influenced by Sister Sarah and Sister Sarah from Uncle Joe. And Uncle Joe didn't know what he's doing to start with. And he um, and he's twisted the words to make himself feel better. Get them for yourself. They're free. I mean, um, everybody wants to go home at the end of the day. Yep, absolutely. So usually I ask a question of riggers of what is the the worst rigging you ever seen? What is the, you know, the, the horror story that you would tell? So I'll modify that a tiny bit for you, which is what is the worst application you've seen a chain hoist used in the entertainment market? Oh, I don't know, really. Well, it wasn't for real, but I'm, I'm going to use this as an example. I was in uh, I was in London, and a, a guy had took a Lodestar and turned it into the Aqua Star, and he had it running in water, and I'm thinking, why? You know, um, as far as I know, Nemo could care less what kind of shows being showed down there, but uh, <laughs> I think you can push the envelopes on the, on the motors. The best case that I have ever saw that just blew me away was over in Sweden. They had a stage that was about a hundred foot round and it was built on a turntable. And what they had is they had a CM motor that was a two ton motor uh, mounted on its side, chain come out through a hook block or through a, a sheave like, and that's the way they, they turned the, turn the stage. They would activate the motor and the motor would actually rotate that stage. And they had doors in between the, they had, you know, the stage was divided in thirds by walls and then those walls was doors so the the actors could go from one scene to the next scene just by opening the door and going through like going from the bedroom to the kitchen say and um but i thought that was pretty impressive that the they had it set up on limits external limits that all they had to do is hit a q button the motor would start running it would rotate and the motor wasn't running that fast so it was there was no jerking to it so it rotated it really smoothly until it hit the limits and then it was facing the crowd again and then when they got ready so, to change it again they hit the cue button and um, it would start running and rotate and i thought now 
manufacturers know up and down, but it's market leaders or riggers that that makes a up and down piece of mechanism sing and dance. So sometimes right. I get impressed with what they can do with uh, you know with motors. So that makes me ask the question. I've never asked this question before. I haven't thought to ask it. Is the hoist able to lift off of either side of the chain as it comes in and out of the hoist? So normally the lifting portion of the chain is the portion that's closest to the center of the frame. And we're talking about CM hoist only because, again, they're the, the lion's share of the market. But is it the same amount of force capacity or load capacity on the outgoing side? So in this application of using a turn tile, turn table, English speak good, I don't. Um, obviously, they weren't running it in one direction. They were running it in both directions, and you can't push on chain. So one would assume they're pulling on the other side of the chain when it moves the opposite direction. I would assume that means that the hoist was able to deal with the load. So I'm thinking through it saying, yeah, I, I, I don't think... Sound I don't like think there's it, a mechanical yeah. difference, is there? No, they're not. Um, and uh, I like to, I like to, that's why I like to hear people think it through because that's when, that's the way you're going to learn. You know, they, as far as the design of it, the motor is stupid. It doesn't know if it's going up, going down. All I know is I got to turn that lift wheel either clockwise or counterclockwise. Uh, as right. far as the loading, um, Whenever you put a load on one side and not the other side, you know, it's going to make the motor, you have to offset the upper hook suspension. Like when you double read, and I, I talk about that in my classes, the center line, you got to offset those center line. But in lightweight cases, it really doesn't matter. A CM, at one time, we, uh, or they manufactured what they called a fire department hoist. And what that fire department hoist was is basically a hoist that had hooks on both ends of the chain. And um, so when a fire truck come back from a fire, they would hook the um, uh, one hook to one of the fire hoses and then pick it up in the air. And that would drain all the water out of it. And But that would also bring the hook down. So they're hooking, when it gets down, they will hook the uh, another uh, fire hose to that hook run it up in the air and that's bringing the fire hose back down and they're stacking it in the truck right so um uh so yeah the you know if it's under full load the motor doesn't know which way it's going but the the design of it is is we got to keep a straight line between the hooks um full circle going, going back to that straight line and if you're coming yeah. off the other the outside pocket of the yeah. lift wheel you're no longer on axis, so your hoist frame is going to tilt a tiny bit, which means you're not going in at a straight angle. Yeah. That's right. That's pretty interesting. And you know, now I'm thinking of, of all the things I can do with chain hoist now. Okay. Now, when I was in a, when I worked in the test lab over in Damascus, uh, that's the way that, that we would test push trolleys, is we had a beam that was like 20 feet long. I would hang a, a um, a trolley on that beam, and then I would take a double reeved Lodestar, run it through, and I had a um, the hook block was welded to the beam on the other side, of, I mean, uh, support on the other side of the beam. Well, the chain went through it, 
and I hooked a two pieces of chain to the trolley so the motor would run between limits and um, and that would pull that pull that trolley back and forth. It had an internal requirement of a million feet. The bearings and stuff in a trolley had to run a million feet and that's the way we got that million feet is the Lodestar would actually pull it um, you know um, horizontally back and, and, um, right back and forth back and forth yeah back and forth. Huh. That's pretty cool. I don't know if I'd want, unless I offset the upper hook suspension to be able to handle uh, equally loading on both sides. I don't know if I would go full load with it, but you know, light loads like at turning that, uh, turning that um, uh, stage with a two-ton motor, I'd say that one person could probably have done it. <laughs> Uh, by pulling on, you know, light loads, I don't think you'd have right. a problem. Well, there's also a different risk assessment, which says if the hoist were to fail, what happens? Your stage doesn't rotate yeah. versus if you're lifting or suspending something and it fails, it falls, stuff goes flat. That's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Not specific to hoists, but you can make it so. What is one of the areas that you think needs improvement in entertainment rigging? And maybe that's related to hoist, maybe a practice or 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 waiting for a manufacturing improvement on hoist that you think is needed? Well, I think it's, I know it's because that's what I do for a living, um, but I think it's training. You know, um, I did a school, I, I'm not going to say who it was for, but they made a big deal out of it. And they actually wanted to interview me and they, they had CNN come over and they had a, I mean, I felt like I was somebody, but um, um, they asked me, one of the questions was, is who needs to be trained? Who needs to go through a, uh, a motor school? I said, anybody, everybody, whether that that's around motors, whether I own them, whether I uh, stand upstairs in the control room, smoke a cigar while I watch people load in, they're my motors. Um, everybody does if you're hanging with them because again everybody wants to go home at the end of the day and and you really need to know what's right and what's wrong you know and these politically correct ways of telling somebody that ain't how you do it you know because again I kind of throw off on cousin Hank a minute ago but you know a lot of times people think I don't need training um, because cousin Hank showed me 20 years ago. Uh, so everybody needs to be trained. Um, you may not learn a thing from me, and that's great and wonderful, and I hope you don't. But everybody would be on the same playing field, and everybody get to go home. You know, get to go home. Um, yeah. People so ask me that question about... Everybody you know, should, That ought to be a requirement. You know, every um, that if, you, if you're a rigger, or if you are a lighting guy, or if you are around a chain motor, Everybody should have to have the training. Well, that's one of the changes they made in the, what is now MUPS, but it used to be aerial lifts, mobile elevated work platforms, which is uh, A92.22 and 24, which is use of and training of mobile elevated work platforms. The big, one of the big changes, it's not just the operator who has to be trained, but supervisors. So that supervisor may never touch the lift, but they need to be trained so that they can make sure the operator is using it appropriately and be a second set of eyes for inappropriate either inspection or use or rescue. 
in yep. terms of if you're the, you know, is this likely to happen? No, but it's not impossible. Exactly. You're operating the chain hoist. You're the only one who knows how to operate the chain hoist and you suck your tie into the hoist. And now it's hanging off the front of your chest and you can't reach the pickle. It's the perfect situation. Well, if no one else knows how to use the hoist or understands what it's doing, do you want them picking up the pickle and, and it's a few inches away from your chin now? Do you uh, do you want that person to guess which way is up or down? So you can create a perfect situation where having someone else trained is important. But the point being is we don't know when those situations are going to happen. Yep. And you, you, you said something there that... Um, um, some people may think it as a joke, uh, but I have learned over the years, they, um, and I will even say this in a class, that if you ask me a question that I think is stupid, you'll never know that I think it's stupid. Uh, but I've been asked some pretty stupid questions, and you kind of touched on it there a minute ago. Um, I've been asked one time, which button makes it go up and which button makes it go down because they use arrows. So you're exactly right, you know, if, if that was been in a situation uh, that you described right there. And that was the person that, um, that had to run that motor. It's a 50, 50 chance. They're going to hit the right button. Yep. So, you know, it's uh, I know that's minor and that probably would never happen, but that probably is a big word. It, it It's only important until it actually happens, or it's yep. only not important until it actually happens. Because yep. again, as we said, Accidents do happen. Incidents happen. Uh, Steve Edelman would tell you that uh, your training should be reasonable using that reasonable person doctrine of what is reasonable and what is expected and what can you reasonably foresee when you do your risk assessments. Um, so, yeah, training is important. People have asked me and said, you know, is it worth it? Because it seems like I should only teach someone how to repair a hoist if we own a bunch of hoists. It's like, well, yes and no. There's the fact that if you're a user and you're on a job site, you don't own the equipment, but you're the user and you hit that random circumstance, that hoist has to be fixed. Mm -hmm. um, the new guy runs the, the chain out of the hoist because it reverse phased and they didn't know to check it and the chain comes out of the hoist. If someone on the crew has gone through training, they can realistically get that chain back in the hoist and save your show. So well, here's something that, that is a, or those are legitimate, but here's something that's, that's very common. Um, and I would ask the people who's listening, have you ever had a problem out of a motor? Well, of course we all have. How, how many of them was just a loose wire? You know, it would take 30 seconds to fix. And, um, but if you haven't been trained, you know, to know, uh, let's check it. We got to put that, we got to take it down. We got to find another motor. We got to hang it up. We got to put it in a road case. We got to ship it back to a service center. Service center is going to take it out. They're going to do their thing and they're going to put it back. They're going to charge you a bunch of money for doing their thing. They're going to put it back in the road case and they're going to ship it back to you. You're going to pay shipping, coming and going, and you get it back and you get it up when you could have fixed it in 15 seconds. You yeah. know, hopefully you don't have to use it, but it's, you know, it's a, to me, it's a small investment that could pay off in the long run just by um, 
being aware of what you can do and what you can't do out in field. Of course, there are going to be times you're going to have to send a motor into a, into the shop, but I dare say that probably 60% or 70% could be fixed on the fly. Um, yeah. You know, what is phase reversing? You know, uh, so if I phase reverse it and break that limit switch, if I've got a limit switch in the junk box up there, I can fix it. You know, I don't have to send it a thousand miles to be fixed. So, uh, you know, that's just, um, I think everybody yeah. should go through the training. A few years ago, uh, when ESTA was merged with Plaza, the Pro, Pro Light and Sound Association from Europe, uh, one of our members, Ron Bonner, did a uh, informal survey about hoist usage and failure. And basically it was a bunch of, he sent it out to a bunch of riggers and non-riggers, everyone in the entertainment market. And he got answers and I think it was about 200 people responded. And he was trying to figure out if there was a, a clear trend on, on hoist failure. Uh, and this was related to the single break and double break discussion, which I don't think we're going to have time to get into today. But he wanted to get try to get some real data because until that point, everything was anecdotal. And his results of his survey seemed to indicate that a majority of hoist failures, and I'm not making this stat up, but it was over 90% of the hoist failures reported were human error. They weren't a pure mechanical uh, issue. And if it was a mechanical thing, like this hoist failed at over its rated capacity, again, that was operational because you put too much weight on it, not it failed. It just, you know, it's loaded to 50% and it just fell out of the sky. It just broke. So it's very interesting. So that human error portion of it is important and you can reduce the human error by getting good training. Mm-hmm. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, and I want to give you an opportunity. You, 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 this should tell people about the character of the individual that your first plug was not yourself or your business and your services, but of ESTA in the technical st- standards program. But let's plug your business for a second. So uh, beginning of the year, you started your own business, which is called Dave Carmack. I'm that one to you. Oh. Yeah, as I said, so Dave Carmack uh, Consulting. Yep. I'll, uh, I'll link to you in the show notes of this for the podcast so that people can find it easily. And you do have a Facebook page. And you're yep. basically doing the, uh, the same thing in terms of continuation of training. And uh, are you doing any other services? Yeah, I do. Um, um, uh, I've got, and I think I even put it on my webpage that that over the years I have built relationships with other industry greats like Eric Rouse and um, and um, uh, Chris Smith with stage rigging, and um, um, it's a, you know I built a lot of relations. I I I want to be somebody's one stop shop. If somebody wants advanced rigging. I can't teach it, but I got a phone call that I can get connected and send and send the right, you know, the right people. Um, so I'm offering uh, motor schools. I'm offering rigging. 
um, I've, I've actually had a couple of contacts and I'm, I'm kind of following what the market is leading me to. Um, I've got two people that when the COVID stuff starts to back off, they want me to come. They want to start uh, kind of maintaining their hoisting itself. So they want me to come and look at their facility and advise them on how to set up a good workstation. So I basic I've been doing it for so long I could I could help people in any form or fashion, uh, but uh, my primary goal is teaching all motors. Um, you know I've got my you know I, of course you know uh, 40 years experience with the the CM Lodestar, but I've got some in depth understanding of all the other market the horses out there because again I don't know as much about those as I do uh, the the Lodestar, but still yeah a hoist is a hoist. And from the engineering days, you know, we've had to study all these all these different hoists. So um, I'm going to teach what the market wants, but I'd say that 90, 95% is going to be the Lodestar because that's kind of what's, you know, um, is what's out there. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap this up. I think we've had some okay. good discussion. But, of course, if I did not ask this next question, I'm sure that some of the listeners would be upset. What is your best and or worst rigor joke or hoisting joke? Um, let me think just a second. Um, I hear jokes all the time. Some, most of them I can't tell. <laughs> um, they, um, you know, when you're dealing with the rigors, uh, they got their own language and stuff, but um, um, I guess the the most common one, and I'm sure everybody's heard it, is um, you know the, what's the difference in a rigger and a sound guy? Um, is a sound guy can only count the two because after two it becomes the lift and they never lift. First time I heard yep. that, I so first time I heard that I didn't I didn't get it. <laughs> And it was two or three days later, it kind of hit me because, um, um, but I've been told some pretty good jokes, but again, most of them I can't tell um, live. That'd be face to face. Well, that should entice people to at some point attend a ESTA working group, uh, technical, standards pro technical standards program working group meeting, whether it's at a, one of the trade shows or if for some bizarre reason you decide you want to go to Texas on your own dime to attend when we're in uh, Texas. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure with the number of people you've taught, you've heard some good ones. So, all right. Well, Dave, thank you very much for spending some time uh, on uh, of your time. English, again, not speaking that great. Thank you again for spending well, some of your time with us and talking in letting people learn a little more about your new business venture, as well as, as probably the tool that everyone in our industry uses all the time. And the most of is to, to lift all the heavy crap that we want to put in the air. I appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners appreciate it. Well, I'd like to leave with one comment is um, uh, please do go to my webpage and check it out. Um, um, but I'm going to be doing my first, I've done uh, some online classes that you can get ATCP renewal credits on. Um, I've done for other people, but I'm actually doing one for myself September the 1st and 2nd. Uh, so I'd love for you guys to, um, um, you know, uh, come on attend. You might learn something, may not learn, but we're going to have a good time when we, when we do it, though.
Perfect. And I'll throw a link up to, to that registration on the uh, show notes for the podcast. So, and, uh, and also I want to thank David for attending the podcast recording as well. Um, with, without David, Dave is only half as entertaining. That is a fact. Excellent. Well, again, thank you very much. And thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger. As big as can be.